0: Everyone is talking about this, the true story of a rape case, is written by mother and teacher, Lisa Lennox. On one ordinary July evening in 2021, the lives of Lisa and her family were turned upside down when her 17-year-old daughter Beatrice, or Bea as she prefers to be known, became the victim of one of the worst crimes that can befall anyone. What follows is the story of the aftermath of this horrific event as Lisa, her husband Phil, youngest daughter Iris, and of course and most importantly be herself, are forced to navigate the police and the legal system in their fight for justice. Please be aware that this audiobook contains references to rape, sexual assault, mental health conditions and eating disorders. There is also occasional strong language. That evening, we go to the Haven. It's one of several specialist units across the city designed to work only with victims of sexual abuse. At least some things have improved. Back in my youth, I seem to remember that women reporting a rape often got examined by police officers at the station and not always female ones. It's good that such places as the Haven exist now, but simultaneously awful that they have to, that we need them, and so many of them. It says a lot about our society, and none of it good. The clinic is located amidst a huge complex of red-brick Victorian buildings. It has the air of being, when it was built, the kind of place from which there were only two ways out, in a box or in a straitjacket. NHS signs point to this department and that, always ending with a strict, capitalised reminder of no parking. Dutifully and obediently, we search for a parking space on the street outside, and luckily find one. We wait until two minutes before six to leave the car. They have to give you five minutes leeway, I say, trying to convince myself as much as Phil or B. We shouldn't get a ticket. Even in extremis, fear over London traffic wardens is ever present, and a £60 fine feels like it would be the last straw right now. We make our way through the maze of buildings to the far end, where we finally locate the Haven unit. David is waiting outside. Where's your car? He asks. On the road, I reply. We didn't think we were allowed to park in here. There's a space here for you. He points at the area right in front of the glass doors. Oh. I look at Phil and then at David. We didn't know. In my mind, I'm hissing, you could have told us. Inside, we are introduced to a social worker called Joanne and then put in a small, brightly coloured room with a pair of ultra-shiny plastic sofas facing each other across a coffee table. It's all brand new, Joanne announces proudly. It looks it, I say. We've just moved in this week, she continues, so we're still getting used to it. She hands us the controls for the TV. Can I get you a drink, she asks. No, we're fine, I say. I just want to say I'm sorry. It's a terrible thing you're going through. I blink back a sudden, unexpected rush of tears, those that come when a stranger is kind, and smile as best as I can. Thank you. We appreciate it. She takes B away with her. When they've gone, for want of anything better to do, I turn the TV on. It plays one channel, Sky Arts, on which a presenter who can't stop saying wow is being shown round a historic castle. I turn the TV off and try to read my Kindle, but I can't concentrate. There's a noise in the room, a steady, rhythmic thumping. Thump. Thump, thump, thump. Thumpity-thump. Every few seconds it pauses, giving the ephemeral hope that it might have stopped altogether. And then it restarts, the same pattern. Thump. Thump, thump, thump. Thumpity-thump. What's that noise, I ask Phil. He screws up his face in an expression of despair. I don't know. We sit in silence for a while, unable to stop listening. Thump, 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 thump. Thumpity-thump. I think it's the air conditioning, I say, pointing to the solid block of an AC unit I can see through the window. I think it's a bloody sick joke, responds Phil, head in hands. I try the TV again to drown out the noise. It's an art programme now, people daubing huge canvases with lurid colours like overgrown toddlers in a nursery. It is watching paint dry, literally. I gaze at the screen for a few minutes and switch off. I try to focus on the book I'm reading, but it's almost impossible with the constant noise. David had told us, almost immediately after we arrived, that he would be working in the neighbouring room for the duration. At some point he puts his head round the door. He asks us about the friend B was with on the evening in question. Sophie, what do you know about her? She's a friend from the eating disorders clinic, I tell him. I've only met her once before. On that occasion, they got very drunk with alcohol Sophie Bored. I pause. So what I think about Sophie is she's probably a lovely girl, but she encourages B to drink alcohol. That's why B didn't tell me who she was meeting. She knew I'd be cross and perhaps tell her she couldn't go. David nods. Great, thanks for clarifying that. He looks towards the ceiling. Thump. Thump, thump, thump. Thumpity thump. That's an awful noise, isn't it? We nod in agreement. I'm assuming he's going to offer to try to do something about it, offer us somewhere else to wait. But he doesn't. Right, I'll see you later then, he says cheerily, and leaves. The noise responds in kind. Thump, thump, thump. Thumpity thump. We've already been there for two hours. Another three hours pass, accompanied by the relentless thump. In the first lockdown, I set myself the task of learning to solve cryptic crosswords, and I've brought a book of them with me. I complete two and then try to read my book again, but nothing sinks in. Another hour ticks and thumps slowly by. David comes back. Would you like to see the doctor when she's finished her examination? My instant reaction is, possibly, a subsequent one. How long will we have to wait? It's midnight already and I'm running on adrenaline after having only had two or three hours sleep the night before. Yes, says Phil, taking the initiative. Right, replies David, I'll let her know. He turns to leave. I don't know how you can stand that noise, he adds, as he departs. We can't, I want to scream at him, but what choice do we have? We wait again. Thump, 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 thump. Thumpity thump. Six hours we've been here now. Thank goodness I arranged for Iris to spend the night with a friend. Finally, at half-past twelve, Joanne comes to get us and takes us to a reception area to meet the doctor. It's a large space with more brand-new furniture, chairs this time rather than sofas. There is no thumping. I look at Phil, and I can see he's thinking exactly the same as me. We could have been sitting in here the whole time. Why did no one tell us this room existed? Gosh, it's quiet in here, I say. Unlike the Chinese water torture of the other room. I explain to Joanne about the noise. She's apologetic. Why didn't you say something, she says. It hardly seems worth telling her that David was fully aware, but did not suggest there was anywhere else we could go, and so we assumed there wasn't. Then the doctor arrives, and our attention turns to her. She's much older than I expected, and she leans on a walking stick throughout our conversation. I'm immediately full of admiration for her. For her gentle manner, air of expertise, professionalism. I wonder where she trained and when. Was she a pioneer in this field of sexual assault, a redoubtable advocate for specialist centres for women? I want to know everything about her, her history and her career, but of course I can't ask. She doesn't have time, it wouldn't be appropriate, and anyway... B is in a room somewhere, waiting. She's been poked and prodded and examined and questioned for hours already. Poor, poor little girl. The doctor has handed Phil an envelope containing information leaflets and booklets, and they are discussing its contents. The fog of paranoia suddenly descends, just as it had in the hospital yesterday. What happens to what B has said to these people? Are they spies? Do they pretend to be having a nice little chat? and in fact they're gathering information so that they can trip her up or make her reveal something that might undermine her case. Then I look at the doctor again. Her wise face and patient eyes, and I'm sure that can't be the situation. The doctor wouldn't go along with that, would she? I run my hand across my eyes. I'm so tired I'm almost seeing double. There are things I should be asking, follow-up medical tests for STDs, counselling, support, but if she tells me I'll just forget. My mind can't seem to retain anything right now. "'Is Beatrice all right?' I ask instead, weakly. "'She's okay, given the circumstances,' replies the doctor. "'She's a wonderful young woman. You should be very proud of her.' Again, tears instantaneously begin to prick behind my eyelids. I want to collapse onto the floor and say, "'I am, I am, I am, and I let her down, and I'll never forgive myself, "'but I'm too tired, and anyway, it's not about me and my pain.' I sniff, compose myself and say, "'Thank you, we are,' and then... Has she remembered anything more yet? I haven't wanted to ask her myself. I don't want to make her think about it. Maybe the truth is that I don't want to think about it. The gruesome details. The appalling abuse. Not much, replies the doctor, but that's very common with the trauma of rape. It's a very specific... trauma. She repeats the word after a pause because there really isn't another one that will do. Therapy is useful in the long run, she continues but we sometimes find it's more beneficial after the trial, that it's better to wait until the criminal justice system has run its course. I nod. It's not until much later in the process that I realise that the doctor's words have a double edge, that they are, in effect, words of warning. Phil goes to collect the car, and Beatrice is brought downstairs. She's paler than ever, whiter than a sheet, eyes blank, face expressionless with exhaustion. Come on, I say, here's Daddy. Let's go home. Phil has taken the day off work to be with B when she does her video-recorded interview, or VRI, at the police station. He took time out of the workforce when B was ill, as one of us had to be with her more or less constantly, supervising her three meals and two snacks a day. We decided that my salary, though only that of a humble classroom teacher, was at least stable and guaranteed, as opposed to his erratic freelance earnings, so I should continue to work while he looked after me. Financially, it had been a huge strain. But no parent puts a price on their child's well-being. Phil was just getting back on his feet again with this well-paying new job. I tried to reassure him. They'll understand, I say. And if they don't... "'Well, you don't want to be working for such people anyway.' He frowns and shakes his head. "'It's not that simple. He knows it, and so do I. "'They'll give him a bit of leeway, "'and then the needs of the programme and its American producers will take over. "'Just one or two days,' I say to him, "'and then you can go back. "'This is another thing you don't even think about "'before your family is suddenly plunged "'into the abyss of the criminal justice system, "'the sheer amount of time it takes.' For nearly a year, the case will consume countless hours like a voracious monster, always coming back for more, never satisfied, never replete. My sister comes over to pick Iris up. She's taking her and her cousins to stay with our parents in their Cotswold village that is too ridiculously pretty for words, a chocolate-box place where people live chocolate-box lives and rapists don't roam the streets on summer evenings, or any evening come to that. Having grown up in the country, in a tiny village a mile or so outside a small town, in adulthood I've rejected the rural life. No bucolic idylls for me. I like the city, the anonymity, the possibility, the fact that everything is on my doorstep. For teenagers I always thought that London was the best place possible, where you can be independent, go where you want, when you want, not like where I was brought up, where you needed a lift everywhere and there was nowhere to go and nothing to do when you got there but as I wave Iris off in my sister's car, I wonder if I've been wrong all along. If I could have kept my child safe in the country. My phone rings. It's a social worker. The police have made a referral to children's services and they want to put Beatrice on a child protection plan. Normally I assume this strikes fear into parents' heart, terror that their parenting is being judged, that their child will be taken from them. But I only feel gratitude. A protection plan. "'Sounds great. I wish I'd had one up and running for Beatrice two nights ago. "'Protection was exactly what she needed and didn't get. "'The social worker Kayleigh says she'll come around tomorrow "'seeing as B is doing her VRI today. "'I've no idea what B will make of either of these things, "'the VRI or the social worker's visit. "'She's not good with new people, and she hates talking about herself. "'Outside the police station, I look up at the forbidding building.' Seagulls soar and call, their cries ironically recalling summer holidays, beaches, ice creams. The girls when little with buckets and spays, building boats for the incoming tide to swallow up and erase. like this horrendous assault could erase Beatrice, wipe her out even as she's still trying to rise up out of her eating disorder. I watch the seagulls swooping overhead as we wait for David to come down to get B. "'Apparently their name is now a misnomer "'and they should just be called gulls "'because they're increasingly found living far from the ocean. "'I heard this on the radio, "'and there are certainly more and more of them in our part of London, "'jostling for position with the other pests, "'the feral pigeons and grey squirrels, "'competing with the rats for the spoils of dropped chips "'and spilt late-night takeaway curries. Davis said to call him when we get here, I say. "'We've taken an Uber rather than drive, "'as it would be impossible to park.' I almost never take taxis, and it's the first time I've ever used Uber. B is incredulous when I tell her that. Well, I say, I suppose I can't get my head around it. For me, taxis have always been a huge indulgence. B has a friend whose mum won't let her take public transport, so the friend has an Addison Lee account and travels everywhere that way. I had condemned this in the past. The unnecessary expense. The creating of poor spending habits. What will she do when she's a student, I exclaimed to B., when she's starting out in work on a basic salary, paying all her own bills. But maybe that mum was right after all. That friend, cocooned in her private hire car, has never been raped by a stranger in the street. Pulling my phone out of my pocket, I dial David's number. He says he'll come out to meet us. When he arrives, he tells us there's nowhere for us to wait inside, so we can't come in. He suggests we go and get a coffee somewhere. He'll let us know when they're done, probably an hour or two. All right, Beatrice, come with me then. I give Bea a hug and a kiss, and Phil and I watch her and David retreating through a side door into the bowels of the police station. I'm uneasy. Is it right for a young girl to be alone in a small room with a man whilst having to explain what another man has done to her? I later found out she would actually be alone with two men, David and the male video equipment operator. Surely we should at least be able to wait outside in case she needs us, needs a break, needs her mom. It doesn't sit well with me, but I don't know what to do about it. David was uncompromising about the fact that we couldn't go in with B. Listlessly, we amble down the street and find a cafe where we sit down at an outside table. A couple of women with young babies are in residence at one of the other tables, with all the paraphernalia infants require around them, buggies and changing bags and teething rings. On their faces they wear the weariness early motherhood induces, but they also look happy. Staff from the nearby hospital keep coming out and greeting the women and their little ones as if they are long-lost, much-loved friends. The babies both seem healthy and hearty, though of course many illnesses or disabilities are invisible. Still, I wonder why they had been in hospital for long enough to know so many staff so well, and hope they are all right now. Phil orders a latte, but the thought of coffee makes me feel nauseous, so I order juice. More hospital staff arrive. There are five gathered around the two women and two babies now. I wonder who's looking after the ones inside. I didn't tell her what to say. A feeling of desperate panic engulfs me as I blurt the words out. Phil looks up slowly from his mobile. What do you mean? And then, before I have time to answer, but you shouldn't do that, of course you shouldn't. I don't mean tell her to make stuff up, I snap, obviously not that. I mean, I should have told her to make sure she said that she didn't want to have sex for the first time ever with a random stranger in the street, that she would never, ever have agreed to that, that the man cannot possibly have thought she was agreeing. Surely she will say that, won't she? Phil looks bewildered. David will ask her, won't he? He'll ask her if she agreed. But she keeps saying she can't remember what happened, and if she can't remember, I reiterate, how does she know what she said? Phil sinks back into his chair, defeated. I don't know. A waitress arrives and plonks two plates of salad-y food in front of us, lentils and squash and beetroot and something wrapped in pastry. Normally I'd love a lunch like this, but I've got no appetite. My stomach is tight with fear and apprehension. This interview is Beatrice's chance, her only chance, other than cross-examination, to make it clear that she did not want to do whatever this man made her do, and I didn't tell her to make sure she made that absolutely crystal clear. I pick at the salad. Phil has gone back to his phone. The women, babies and hospital staff are still there, chatting away about holidays and feeding routines and sleep patterns. Premature, I say. I've suddenly got it. They must have been premature babies. That would explain how well the mothers know the staff. Prems can be in special care for months. I'm ridiculously pleased and satisfied that I've come up with a plausible explanation for what has been irrationally puzzling and preoccupying me. Phil is, too. "'Glad you've worked that out,' he says dryly. "'You looked as if you were on the verge of going over to ask them.' "'No, I wanted to solve the mystery myself,' I reply. "'My phone rings. "'It's an iPhone 5 on its last legs, "'the battery only holding a charge for a couple of hours. "'I answer, praying it'll hold out to the end of the call. "'It's David, saying to come back and get Beatrice in fifteen minutes. "'I've barely touched the salad, but I can't eat any more. "'I push the plate away from me. "'Phil eyes it, hopefully.' "'Don't you want that?' I shake my head. "'He pulls the dish towards him and begins to demolish it. "'It's always like this. "'When we get stressed, I eat less and he eats more. "'Like Jack Spratt and his wife. "'Although weren't they the other way round? "'He could eat no fat and she could eat no lean? "'Let's go,' Phil says. "'Outside the police station, David and B are waiting. "'Did it go all right?' I ask. B shrugs. "'All fine,' enthuses David.' He's always very cheerful, I've noticed, which I suppose is good considering the miserable nature of the crimes he's involved in, but then also somewhat irritating as really, what is there to be cheerful about? I mean, there's a few issues with what Beatrice can remember, because she can't remember much, but that's okay. Right, I nod. And any update on a suspect? David grimaces, the cheeriness momentarily evaporating. Not yet, but we're making progress. I'll keep in touch. Phil calls an Uber and we climb in, the mandatory face coverings masking our sadness. There's a man out there somewhere, maybe with an accomplice, who raped our daughter. Who is he? Where is he? The thought that he might not be found, that we might never know who did this, is too awful to contemplate.